God, what a privilege and what an honor it is to come, to gather together as your saints, to worship you, for you alone are worthy of our praise. So God, we pray that this morning as we have already sung to you, that it was honoring to you, that as we give of our tithes and our offerings to you, that you would receive the glory that you're due. And that as we open scripture, that you might show us your words written through the Holy Spirit, that we might know who you are. Your love, your compassion, your grace, your kindness. But also, as we're going to see in this text, your fatherly discipline as well. Thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to the cross, that he went willingly, that he might be our atonement for sin. And thank you that you love us so much that you're not willing to just leave it there, but that you are actively at work in our hearts and in our minds, changing us, maturing us, helping us to grow in our faith and our knowledge of who you are. God, as we study your word this morning together, may you show us something that that would cause us to take seriously our desire to grow and become more like you. God, we want to pray for those this morning who are unable to join us, whether they're away or at home sick or unable to travel or whatever the reasons may be. We pray for them, each of them, that you You know them, that you love them, that you are with them, and I pray that they might know that this morning. For those who are watching and unable to be here in person but are are watching and part of the service, we pray that they would feel your comfort, that they would feel your direction, that they would know what you are doing in their lives. As Ernie already has mentioned, but we want to pray again, there's many in our world who are under persecution. Many who don't have the same freedoms that we have to come and to gather corporately to sing praises as loud as we want to you. And so God, for those who are in a place where they're gathered in small groups, where they're unable to sing loudly, we pray that no less than our loud praises here would they be lifting their praises there. That you would protect and care for your family, your children. That you would keep safe those who are under the threat of persecution. And we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their determination. For their desire to honor you even in the midst of hardship and difficulty. May that challenge us to have deeper dedication for you. God, for the tithes and offerings that we're about to give to you, again, everything that we have is is not of our own doing, but is a gracious gift that you have given us. And so what you have given us, we know we are to steward well, not primarily for our own interest, but that we would steward it well to reach out and to serve those who you have called us to. 
So God, as we give, we pray that we would give cheerfully, that we would give expectantly, believing that you are going to do great things with what we give to you now, that you would take it, that you would multiply it. God, we pray for wisdom for the church board as they consider every month what what and how to move forward as a church. Would you give us great wisdom that we would use these things for your honor, for your glory, and that people in our community might come to faith in Jesus. Be with us in the rest of these minutes that we share together now. Amen. All right, well, we spent three weeks going through Exodus 32. And here's a mad stat for you. There's only five Sundays until Advent. That was not quite the response I was expecting. <laughs> five Sundays to Advent, which means that we've got to hurry up here uh, because we have about seven chapters to cover in four weeks because there's a missions Sunday in there as well. So we're going to go through all of chapter 33 today. Uh, I'm going to read it. We're going to look at kind of three different sections, three different paragraphs uh, really quickly in that. But just before we do that, let me remind you where we ended last week. Chapter 32 ends with Moses acknowledging this, and we use some quotes from, from the text, this great sin, this huge awful betrayal of God that the people committed in in worshiping the golden calf. Moses goes back up to the mountain to converse with God and and, and he asks, hoping that he can make atonement for their sin. And if you remember, when you read the Old Testament, we should constantly be looking forward to what is to come. And, And we saw how Moses exemplifies the future Messiah, that he asks if he can give up his life in place of the people. And of course, God says, no, Moses, you you can't do that. But he's giving us a foreshadowing of the one who was to come, that when Jesus would come, that because he lived a sinless life, that he would be able to do that. He would be able to atone for our sins, that we could be reconciled to God from our sins. And the reason I say that is because we're going to see these kinds of things happen in the next couple of weeks again where Moses points us to that. And if, and if we, the reader, don't see the foreshadowing of Christ, then we need to read more carefully because this is the intent of the text and what it's trying to tell us. What happened in the end of that text is that God in his mercy and his grace does not wipe out the entire nation, though, as we talked about, that is what was deserved. And we looked at this doctrine of total depravity that the reality is is that I deserve nothing good from God. That my sins deserve one punishment and one punish only, and that is death and eternity in hell. And so God graciously spares the vast majority of them, but there's consequences that come. There's 3,000 people that, that do die, and then there's a plague that comes on the people, and we're going to read through this morning as well that there's further consequences that happen. And I want us to consider those consequences because this is kind of where we find ourselves in the story, is that we say we want to follow God, and I hope and believe that if you've gathered here this morning that you want to submit your life under Christ and that you're desiring to follow him. And yet there are things in our lives, there are consequences that happen, some due to the just reality of our own choices, and some due to the fact that we're being disobedient to what God has called us to do. 
But God is gracious and merciful in those consequences that he doesn't just abandon us, but that he works within his plan of salvation to bring us to himself, even though that might look different than we expect. And so I want you to think about that as we read the text here. I want you to see uh, the similarities between us now and this ancient people back in Exodus 33. So let's read this together. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. The Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for... Uh, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, 
And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So there's three sections here, and, and each of them kind of have their own uniqueness. And so we're going to try and rip through them here quickly, but I hope efficiently. And, and if, if by any, you know, if I don't cover a question that you have, please do come and talk to me later. I would love to do that with you. But the, begin, the text begins here um, by God calling Moses. It's time to depart Mount Sinai. And it, in verse 6, I'll just note this. It says Mount Horeb. And those are the same mount, uh, just different words that are used at different times. Uh, but it is the same. Oh, boy, that was exciting. It's okay. ADD. Here we go. Focus, Greg. God calls them to leave Mount Sinai and to move on. Now, they've been there for just about a year in total. Right? But this is God's reminder that this is not the end journey, that the end journey was the promised land. That is where they were supposed to go. And, and if, you kinda, if you know the story or if you look ahead, if you've read ahead, you know that they don't exactly get there very speedily, but there's kind of a 40-year detour. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit in just a moment here. But there's this journey that they were to take, but their sin and their disobedience continues to get in the way over and over and over. But this is the, I don't know, it's just a bizarre thing about Scripture that when we really enter into, it's just amazing, is that despite the people's faithlessness, God remains faithful. What he promises he will do, even when we step in as mankind and we try and ruin it. Now God will be faithful, but he does it in different ways. And the initial plan that we might see of, man, this journey should have taken a real short period of time, and the people could have just gone straight there. Well, yes, that's true, but is that not true of your life also? That God knows exactly what he has for you, but so often we make a detour. We turn and we make our own decisions and we say, God, I don't, I don't want to do this thing or have that career or whatever these decisions. I want to do my own thing. And, and God says, I'm going to continue to be gracious and merciful. I'm still going to accomplish my purposes. But there's consequences that happen, and especially with the people here. But I do think it's worth noting that it's just remarkable that God remains faithful even when we're faithless. God says, I'm going to send an angel before you. One of the consequences, kind of further to this, is that God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with you because, well, he says, you're a stiff-necked people. Really, what that means is they were obstinate. They were difficult to lead. You ever had somebody in your care, in your charge, that's stiff-necked? Don't put your hand up. Maybe a different question. Have we ever been? obstinate and stiff-necked. Maybe you've had the, 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 I say opportunity, but maybe that's being too kind, um, where you've been tasked to lead somebody, to teach them something. And, and you know, sometimes there's multiple ways to do something, and sometimes there's only one way. And you show them that this is, this is what you need to do, and they're like, no, I'm going to figure out a different way. You're like, we've, we've been there, we've done that, we've tried that. 
These things don't work. Here's what you need to do. And yet people seem to always want to go, no, no, I want to do it my own way. Well, this is what the people have been doing from the beginning. As God shows up, God says, here's who I am. Here's, here's the commandments. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to treat me. And here's how I want you to treat other people. And ultimately, it's all for your good. And it's the best way for you to live. And the people go, no, 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 I've got a better plan. How often are we guilty of the same thing? Moses is called to lead this people that continually, they continually turn away. They continue to want to redefine everything on their terms. And as we saw last week, and we'll continue to see this, is that what might be expected of Moses would be to say, I'm done. Like, figure it out yourselves. Maybe you've been there before. Parents, this is called the teenage years. We're one year away, I'm just getting ready now. Where all of a sudden, the people think, well, we know better. And it can be so easy to just throw our hands up in the air and go, I just, I don't even know what to say or do anymore. But what we see in the text here is that Moses continually learns to lean more and more and more on God for the leadership that he is called to bring to the people. Because he's more and more and more aware of his own inability to lead. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway from this whole text, and we're going to talk about this more as we go, is the more mature we become in our faith, the more desperately we realize we need Christ. Because my own wisdom is insufficient. My own smarts will let me down. And I desperately need to follow Jesus. It may seem to us here like God's going, man, he's just angry at these people. But remember, the only reason that he's still even with them and and giving the angel to walk out of Mount Sinai is because of his grace and his compassion and his kindness. Because they continually rebel against him. But then, there's good news we see in verse 4. For one of the first times, we really see that the people get it. Verse 4 says, when the people heard this, what does the next word say? Disastrous word. They mourned. They recognized just how serious this was. And and here's the thing, right? God had an intimacy with them when they got to Mount Sinai. God came down in a pillar of cloud. And, and the people heard his voice, and, and there was a closeness with God. But it wasn't quite what they wanted. They wanted was an idol that they could see and that could actually physically lead them. And so they created that hoping that that would bring them intimacy with God. But the actual worship of that did the exact opposite. It brought them away from the intimacy of God. What they wanted most was to be with God in his presence, but they wanted to do it on their terms And when they did it on their terms, the consequences were that they lost the very thing that they wanted. But the good news is that they mourned. It says they all took off their ornaments. Now, again, if you're reading carefully, is the ornaments were given from God graciously from the people of Egypt. Ultimately, it was going to be in the construction and the building of their tabernacle, but they chose to use that to melt it down and to worship a golden calf. And so as one of the consequences of that is God says, you're going to take all of that off. That's no longer going to be a part of who you are. And we're going to put that elsewhere. And it says in verse six that they did this from Mount Horeb onward. And again, that means for 40 years that outwardly they were in a, in a state of mourning. 
They recognized, and and even as God does begin to reconcile himself to them slowly, or rather reconcile the people to himself slowly, is this outward sign of mourning continued because they needed to remind themselves, just like we need to remind ourselves, that we got to take God at his terms, not our own. And so they mourn, they take these things off, and they recognize their sin. But another consequence that we see in verses 7 to 11, and you've got to remember back now, so we've got to go back to the initial uh, idea of the tabernacle that God gave. The tabernacle was supposed to be, do you, do you remember where the tabernacle was supposed to be in the midst of the people? Right in the center. Right? The tabernacle was supposed to be the very heartbeat of the people, and they would all gather around it so that God was in the midst of them, that he was there among the people. Now that is going to happen still, but for now in verse 7, we read that 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 as well has been broken, and the people um, are in a camp, but where where is the tent of meeting, which is kind of like a mini tabernacle? Where, Where is it? It's outside the camp. It's far off. There's a distance now between the people and God that God didn't want. Now, if, you, if you're reading the Bible real carefully, what does this remind you back of? The very beginning of the Bible. is God creates Adam and Eve, and he's in communion with them. They choose to redefine things on their own terms, and what happens? They get cast out of the garden, and there's a distance between God and man. And the rest of the Bible is about this journey to reconcile that ultimately culminating in Jesus. But we see moments of that happening, and this is one of those moments where Sinai was meant to be that, and the same thing happens again. The people choose their own way, and now there's a separation again that God is outside of the camp, that, that the tent of meeting where Moses was was outside. Now, here's the good news. That's the consequence, but the good news is that God doesn't just abandon his people. He doesn't just say, you know what, you're on your own. But there is this visual reminder constantly that any time a person had some kind of need to inquire of God, that they had to take a little trip outside of the camp, and they had to go to Moses. But the gracious, merciful part of that is they still had that option. They could still go. There's one thing else that I wanted to note here. That's why I had to look through my page because I couldn't remember. When you read this text and you see it, what's really interesting to note is that Moses and Joshua as well, but Moses does not have that same level of distance between God that the rest of the people had. See, Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Joshua was halfway up with, the, uh, with kind of waiting for Moses to come down, but they were waiting for God's presence. They were waiting for him to come back down, and as the people should have been waiting expectantly, they moved on into idolatry and sinful behavior. And so while there's consequence for everyone, for Moses, the consequence is actually more, now how I lead this people is very different. When Moses would go to the tent, it says that the cloud would come down representing that God's presence was with Moses uh, again. But there's a statement made in verse 11 that's really interesting. 
says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. And that seems kind of like an odd phrase because in the next few verses that we read, is you kind of see Moses going, God, I want even more intimacy. I want to see your glory. And God kind of goes, you can't see me because if you see my face, you'll, you'll die. And so this is sometimes where people will read these things and they won't read them in the grand context of everything and they'll go, man, this is a contradiction of terms. But again, when God is writing these things to us through the Holy Spirit, when these words are being penned, they're being written in a way for us to understand them. And so R. Allen Cole's helpful in his commentary here. He says this, Numbers 12, 8 explains the meaning of this phrase, God will speak to Moses mouth to mouth. That is to say, not in dreams or visions, but clearly and directly. Moses still has an intimacy with God that the people of Israel as a whole have lost. But it's not as though God is comes down as a man and sits with Moses to converse with him, though that's the imagery we're given here, but that's all it is, is imagery, is the only time that God's going to come down as man is when? When Jesus actually comes and comes to earth. And so again, if we don't see this pointing to Jesus, then we're not reading it carefully enough. So there's an intimacy that Moses has that the people don't. But then the, the bulk of the text here from 12 to the end is all about Moses wanting more. Moses wanting deeper relationship with God, more intimacy, uh, an understanding of his presence. He wants to see his glory. But what scholars point out here in these verses is that Moses isn't doing this for his own selfish benefit. He's doing this because he recognizes that he has a calling to lead this, in God's words, stiff-necked people, and he knows that he is incapable of doing that. This is the huge reality that we need to wrap our minds around here. Not just for Moses, but for us as well. Is the very tasks, the very things that God has called us to do, we are incapable of accomplishing on our own. But we desperately need God. So Moses here is, in his own mind, recognizing how incapable, how wicked and sinful the people are, and how am I supposed to lead them? How am I supposed to lead them well? And so he asks God, you say that I found favor with you, and he knows that he has because he, he can have that intimacy with God where nobody else can. But then he has this plea with God, and he's pleading with God to God's character, not to anything the people deserve or anything that he deserves. And he gives a logic that's really interesting that applies to us the same. Is he basically says this, is if we're going to go out, but, but you're not going to be with us, then, then why would we even go? Remember, what's the promise that God gave to Abraham, that through your nation, all the nations of the earth would find blessing? How are they going to find blessing if God doesn't go with them? And so Moses even says, if, 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 you're not, if your presence isn't going to come, then I don't even want to go because it's destined to fail. How are the people, he actually says, how are the people going to, going to know? How are, how are the nations going to know that we are your people if you're not among us? Now the same, the exact same thing is true of the church today, isn't it? 
is we gather here and we gather to worship God, but we gather here with the belief that God is present among us. We're not just another social club out doing something as as good and helpful as those things can be, but we have the Spirit of God living within us. And we are called for purpose and meaning. And so the same be true as if God is not among us, then we don't want to go out. If God is not in the conversation with somebody else, I don't want to be in that conversation. Because I know my limitations. I know I have no ability to convince somebody of their need for Christ that God and God alone can do that. Jesus explains it this way in John 15, 4 and 5. And and I really want us to dwell on this for the next couple of minutes. Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Then here's the key. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Now, on this side of the cross, we we can look at the text here and and we can see Moses calling out to to want to have this intimacy with God. But here's the crazy thing apart on this side of the cross is that you and I, if you have submitted your lives to Jesus Christ as you have been given the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within you. And so while we can want a, a deeper manifestation of that, the same as Moses is asking, is that we have everything that we need because the Spirit lives in us and is equipping us to accomplish whatever he's called us to do. But Jesus says, but you need to abide in him. As Daniel always says in men's group, you can't be a lone ranger Christian. It doesn't work. Is we need to abide in Christ and in one another corporately to accomplish this. Is if we say we're a Christian and we want to share the good news of Jesus with people, but we're not abiding in Christ, we're never going to do it. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, the old song as a kid that we sang many times, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. I wasn't going to sing it, but those are what we have to do. So if we want to abide in Christ, we need to read God's word. We need to understand who he is. And as we understand who he is more, there's a unique thing that happens, and I already said this, is that we're going to more and more see our desperate need of him. The more we read and understand God, the more we say, God, I need more of you because I am incapable. I can't do it on my own. Are we in prayer regularly? Do we have daily communion with God, calling out to him when we have need, but calling out to him when we are blessed, calling out to him in all situations, being aware that he is leading and guiding? Maybe you've had this experience In fact, somebody came up to me this morning and told me of this experience. Is when we're abiding in Christ and when God gives us opportunities, whether to share the gospel or to love someone in need, is those moments become very clear to us. Because God's opening those doors and he's showing them to us. But we'll only see them as we're abiding in him. So Moses says, God, show me your glory. 
It's an interesting response when, when what he's just asked for is, is God, we're not, I don't even want to go if you're not going to go up with me. And God grants it to him and says, I will go with you. And, and, and his response, what I would think would be, thank the heavens, God, thank you that you are going to do that. But instead he goes, God, show me your glory. He's just so aware of his desperate need for him. And so then we have this kind of interesting and, and maybe difficult at first to understand text, but what's happening here is just it's anthropomorphism, which is, which is simply a fancy word of saying that it's being written in a way that God is being described in a way that we can actually understand and, and grasp. Is God is not a man. God is not like when we read that God's going to cover Moses with his hand, like it's not like God has some giant hand and he's just some giant version of, of us. And that's why the text says, when God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And what is he going to proclaim? His name, the Lord. Do you remember what the Lord, remember what Yahweh means? I am. Douglas Stewart writes, God's goodness was, in other words, not so much a thing to be seen at a certain time by looking in a certain direction, but an ongoing experience of the nature of God as he manifests his nature for the benefit of his people through his beneficent covenant. In other words, this is Moses is going to see every bit of God, at least in part. God's going to show him his goodness, not all of it. We as, a, as, as men and women, we... We couldn't possibly see or understand all of who God is, and God knows that. And he's trying to help us see in the text that, that he can't just sit down and be like, okay, Moses, here you are. You can actually have intimacy with me the way that, that you want to sit down and have conversation with, and, and why can't he? If Adam and Eve could in the garden and we can't now, then what's the difference? Sin. God did have that kind of communion with Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. The good news is that's where we're headed back to. Is that's what God is accomplishing in the narrative of Scripture. He's bringing Jesus to put flesh on him, to bring him down so that we actually get to be in communion with God, again, at least in part of what is going to be the one day when we go to eternity with him. Moses will get to see God in all of his goodness. He will get to be in his presence, at least in part. Again, Moses was utterly dependent on God and knew that he needed more of God and less of him. But here's an interesting thing, and again, Stuart in his commentary kind of helps us think this through, but I want us to look at this first from a sense of biblical history and then into now. As Stuart writes this, such divine evidences are exceptions, not the rule. A few biblical characters get to hear God's voice. The vast majority do not. A few are allowed to see some sort of visible manifestation of his presence. Most never do. Jesus, who ultimately represented God among humans in this world, was seen and heard by thousands of people, 
But their number is relatively small compared to the number of all those who have never seen nor heard him personally. When we look back into the Old Testament and even into the New, is what we see is that God intervenes in unique ways at unique times with people. But the vast majority of them don't get to see what Moses saw and yet believed. A whole nation, as imperfectly as they followed God, chose to follow God. And there were moments when a lot of them didn't. But then when Jesus came and, and the nation and, and many turned to Christ and followed him, is there were many more that didn't see him. In fact, all of the letters in the New Testament are written to people that never saw Jesus. But they did hear about Jesus. And yet they had faith and belief. And here's where we're going to go when we study Acts in the new year, is one of the unique things that happens in Acts is when the people come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happens is it's written as that fires, uh, sorry, tongues of fire come down over people and kind of rest above them. And you're kind of reading this, and we'll talk about this more when we get to Acts, but we're reading this going, what is this representation of? And then what we start to see is all of this is temple imagery because we had to go to the temple where God was at the center. But now God has come to us. And God imprints his Holy Spirit upon each of us. And so while we look back at biblical history and see that many people don't get to experience what Moses got to, and and we don't either, but we do in a very different way, is that all of us now get the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives so that we have direction, so that we have clarity, so that we know what is right and wrong. God lives within us, and so we don't see what Moses saw, but we see something just like it. Are we, like Moses on Mount Sinai, who had been with God in his presence and yet wanted more of it, is is that how we are? We have God's Holy Spirit in us, but are we listening to him? Are we wanting a deeper, more intimate relationship with him? Or do we take it for granted and we go, yeah, God's with me. Forgetting that he should be every bit of our life. See, the thing that I want us to get most out of this text is that Moses is desperate to see God's glory, not for a selfish experience so that he can go, wow, that was really powerful, but so that he would know and understand God, and that he could trust him more and more so that he could do the task to which he was called to lead a very obstinate people into the promised land. Same for us now, is we are the church and we have been given a mission to declare Christ and to make him known. But God hasn't given us that mission and said, good luck and see you later. He said, I'm going to be with you And Jesus argues with the disciples in the New Testament where he says to them, it's actually better for you that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come and indwell you individually. See, we have been given the same mission that the nation of Israel was, that we might bring blessing to the world that they might know who Christ is. How do we? 
We do that by living in the power of the Holy Spirit, representing him. And we only do that as we abide in Christ. And the more we fill ourselves up with who Jesus is, the more, there's a weird way to say it, but the more Jesus leaks out of us and that the people see him. That ought to be our goal. Not that people see how talented we are, how gifted we are in this area, or anything to do with our accomplishments. But all of it should be about, look at who God is. Look at what he has done. Just like the old hymn writers, we could say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. There's nothing in me that's worth saving. But God has reached down and saved me. And now I, just like the Israelites back then, get to be an ambassador for God that people might know who Christ is. So when we read texts like this, as this should be our hearts calling to God, show us your glory. Not just so that I have a, a you know, really interpersonal moment in worship with you, but so that I would learn to trust you through the hardships of my day. So that I would learn to give all that I am to you so that when I have conversation with people that you would come through and not me. May other people see God's glory in us. Maybe the best way to say that is despite us. Let's pray. God, sometimes we can read Old Testament verses like this and, and we can look at it and we can say, man, what an amazing thing it would be to be Moses on the mount and to experience God's glory. And yet, God, then we're ignoring all of the New Testament. God, thank you that you have uniquely equipped us with the Holy Spirit. That if we have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you have given us that deposit as a guarantee for our salvation. Thank you that we can experience you in a way that pre-cross almost nobody did. What an honor and a privilege and a blessing it is to know that the Spirit dwells within us. Well, we maybe aren't called to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land, you have called us to bring Jesus Christ to the world. And so thank you for the Holy Spirit that we don't have to go on that mission alone, but that you have uniquely equipped us to accomplish those purposes. But the only way that we're going to accomplish that is as we abide in you. So may we be a people who seek to know you intimately. That we would study and that we would read your word. That we would be in communion with you in prayer. That we would consume our minds and our hearts and our lives with things of you. That we might mature and grow, and that we might see more and more all the desperate need that we have for you. God, thank you for texts like this which point to the history of what has happened, but also to the future of what was going to happen, and to the present now of what is happening in our hearts. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Jesus Christ, 
that he went to the cross, that he atoned for our sins, that he rose again, and that he will take us to be with you for eternity. May this never be a normal thing, but may it cause awe and wonder in our hearts daily. God, thank you that you love us. Go with us today now. Amen. Just a quick reminder of a couple things. One is that there's snacks.